Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and this is the first episode of 2022. And I want to start by apologising as the schedule has been a little disrupted, not least due to me getting COVID. And it may take us a few weeks until we get back to our usual schedule of episodes published once a fortnight. But thanks for bearing with us. You are the reason we make the podcast. I'm sure that you, like me, are looking forward to a more positive year than we've experienced previously. And I'm really pleased to kick off our 2022 schedule by welcoming my wonderful colleague, Basel England Professional Officer, Becca Pierre, to discuss an incredible piece of work she published in October last year, which explores her experiences of living in an unregulated care placement as a teenager. Welcome, Becca. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And interesting you mentioned COVID. I don't feel like, you know, still the same person I was before I had COVID. So I'm with you. I'm feeling a little bit sluggish today, but I hope that you're feeling better. Thanks. I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling really tired. Uh, I kind of feel glancy. It's not nice. Um, listeners probably don't want to know about this. But it, it, it doesn't, it's, they said it was like a cold. That's what everyone was saying. Omicron was like, it's like a cold if it's the worst cold you've ever had in your entire life. That's kind of what I, that's how I experienced it at least. Yeah. I have colleagues though who have, who have only known they were positive because of the test and they felt fine. But um, yeah, so you didn't survive it then? I mean, Sorry, you didn't escape. You did obviously survive it. You didn't escape it. You didn't escape it. No, I know. I've, I felt like, oh, you know, get into almost two years and it's, I've been dodged it. But no, um, I think onwards and upwards now, though, just, you know, you've got to take each day as it comes, haven't you, with these things? So. Yes, it's nice to be able to go out into public and not be worried about catching something that you've just had. You know, that's the only silver lining to this. Um, Becca, this is the third time you've been on Let's Talk Social Work and it's great to have you back. Some of the issues we're going to discuss today, we've touched on in previous episodes. We made one on county lines, that was in April 2021. And also we discussed in July um, the review of children's social care in England, which is ongoing and we will touch on again today. Now, if anybody hasn't listened to those episodes, I'd really encourage you to go back through the catalogue and explore them. They're really, really useful um, opportunities to learn. Becca, what we're looking at today is your article published in the journal Practice. It's entitled Revisiting Diary Entries from Care. And I'm going to include a link in the show notes so that listeners can download the paper. But can you start us off by telling me how that article came about? Yes. So I knew that in the context of the review of children's social care, having been in what was once called an unregulated placement, and I'll touch on that later on, It's it would now be called a careless setting, um, I really wanted to expose the reality of what life is like in those placements. And since the review was framed as once in a lifetime, once in a generation, I wanted to really take this opportunity to, to visit that. And so whilst I was um, I was researching the paper, my intention was to write about um, the challenges faced in those settings. And just to sort of jog my memory, I thought, OK, well, let me get out my old dusty shoebox um, full of old things um, and get out my diary. And so I, I started reading the diary entries I wrote. And, 
eventually I got to the point where I thought, well, instead of summarising these diaries, why don't I just photograph them and publish them as it is? And in that way, capture the spirit of the child I was rather than the adult I am now. That's a really interesting approach. It was very much based on your own experiences, something you documented years in the past, yes? Yes, and it's interesting because at the time I never would have seen it as me documenting anything. I think from quite a young age, um, I was quite introverted and my only way of really expressing how I felt was through writing. And so, yeah, I suppose for me it was just a, a coping mechanism rather than actively documenting something. But I'm, I'm very glad to that younger version of myself now that I did document that. Fantastic. And I want to talk later about some of the issues around that, even some of the potential ethical pitfalls that come from using that as a source of, of information. Mm. But just to actually expand a little bit about unregulated placements. Now, did you use the term, did you say it would now be called a careless setting? Yes, that's right. Whoever came up with that uh, title didn't put an awful lot of thought into it because it is actually, in you know, it has a very double meaning. Well, it does. And so... Um, previously, the last time we spoke, we would be talking about these kind of settings where 16 and 17 year olds live without care as being unregulated because at that time there was a loophole in legislation. So Ofsted would need to regulate foster homes or children's homes, but would not have to regulate unregulated placements. And these placement providers, much of them who are for profit and privatised, would get away with that. However, now the government has almost bended the language so that actually now these settings are regulated, but there is no uh, care standard in that regulation. So they're almost regulating that absence of care. If Does that make any sense? I know it's so convoluted. Well, who, who is providing the regulation? Is it now Ofsted in that regards? It is now Ofsted. And um, I've actually found a list of um, what they would see as care criteria, if that would be any help. It would be, yes. Go ahead. So f in um, a careless setting, these are the things that do not have to happen. So um, can a young person go out of the establishment without staff's permission? Yes, they can. Do young people have full control of their finances? Yes, they do. Do young people have control over what they wear and the resources to buy clothes? Yes, they do. Are young people in charge of meeting all their health needs, including GP, specialist care appointments and medication? Yes, they are. Um, there's loads more, but the one that I will finish with is can young people choose to stay away overnight without getting permission? And, and yes, so you can see that's an awful lot of responsibility for a vulnerable 16 year old to have. Um, and there would be no way that, um, yeah, a 16 year old would have to be in full control of their finances when they were living with their parents and doing their A-levels and so on. And you see, when you began discussing that list, I could see how somebody who doesn't have an understanding of the needs of a young person could see that almost as an, an empowering set of criteria, mm -hmm. you know, about responsibility. But when you're 16, you're far from uh, knowledgeable enough and experienced enough to look after yeah. yourself in those regards. I mean, I certainly didn't when I was living at home um, as a 16-year-old with my parents. And it seems like a, yeah... Far, far too much to ask of a 16-year-old. I just think that's a really important point and I agree wholeheartedly. And actually, there seems to be this obsession with prematurely, uh, you know, encouraging people in care to grow up. So if you look at the non-care experience population, the average age of home, of leaving home is about 24.6 years old. 
um, and most people still at that point um, wouldn't be managing their own finances. They may be getting support with parents. And yet we're expecting a 16 year old kid to pay their electric bill and their gas bill, which, by the way, we've seen this week is going to face a huge increase, uh, manage food, clothing. And for me, being 16, actually, I, I had to choose often between do I put the heating or the electricity on or do I have food? And, you know, if something like a school trip came up that all my friends were going to, for me, I would sacrifice eating well that week to be able to go on that school trip. So it's a very difficult situation to manage. And I think when most people consider the experience of children in care, there is an assumption that care means that uh, there's supervision provided sort of 24-7 around the clock and and support provided as, as needed. So that is very different from the experience you have described in your paper. But I think it's one in eight. Uh, young people that are in the care system have been in an unregulated placement. That was a stat published by the Children's Commissioner. They they produced some research on this issue in 2020. That's a, it's a huge number of children. It's a huge number of children and actually there's been an 89% increase in children aged 16 and 17 years old in those settings from 2010 to 2020. Um, and so you can see really it's it's a slip road and over half of children in those settings are from black and minoritised communities, lots of children who are seeking refuge as well. So it's really problematic. And just to be clear, what, what age were you, Becca, when you found yourself in the unregulated placement? I was 16. 16. OK, it's very, very young. Very young, kind of on the cusp between 16 and 17. But, you know, legally speaking, I was a child. And had you any previous experience of the care system? Had you been in a children's home or in a foster care placement? Mm. Yeah, my only experience before that was what's called or what was then called um, an informal foster arrangement. So one that was not vetted by the local authority, but um, I was due to uh, have a kind of meeting with a social worker and then unfortunately one of my foster placements broke down at four days notice and that's when I found myself homeless and yeah uh, referred to the hostel. And um, was it in the town that you'd grown up in? Were you out of area or were you living in your placement? Was it somewhere that you were familiar with? Yeah so it was somewhere that I was familiar with. It was, I won't name the town but um, it was a deprived, one of the most deprived coastal towns um, in the UK, which faced, you know, so many issues of skyrocketing um, youth unemployment, highest teenage pregnancy rates in Europe at one time. Um, I think the life expectancy as well for some of the population is about 10 years younger than in other parts of the country. So, you know, a town facing real difficulties. And can you tell us a bit about the nature of the accommodation? What was it actually like? I can. So it was a hostel with 38 bedsits. So each bedsit had a micro kitchen. So it had a hob and a microwave. It was essentially a studio flat. um, And then it had a bed and a bathroom and electricity meter inside. And I think for me, home is somewhere that you should feel safe and wanted and nurtured. And actually, when I think about that, time it felt so clinical so I was on the third floor and there were iron bars across the window um, to stop people from jumping out and that is not a that's a scary environment and also uh, when the first day I went um, I was told sorry you're not going to have any access to money for six weeks luckily I had a job at a fast food restaurant but I only earned 40 quid 
um, a week. So that was not enough to live on. Um, so I had no utensils, no sheets on the bed, very empty. And also I lived with uh, people aged 16 to 25. So, you know, you can imagine being a 16-year-old girl living across the hall to from a 25-year-old guy who is known to the police and has uh, substance, you know, issues was really scary. Okay, so just to be clear, it was a mixed accommodation. Mixed accommodation, yes. yeah. Yes. In terms of the social work support you had, you had a social worker um, at that time, is that correct? Yes, so she was at the, I say she was at the placement every day. She was there between nine to five uh, Monday to Friday, but I only saw her once every two weeks. Um, sometimes it was just a, you know, a kind of one hour meeting. So very minimal support. And were you, did you feel able to to confide in her the vulnerability you felt in the placement? I think the honest answer is no. There was almost this underlying sense of, well, be grateful that you have somewhere to live and be grateful that you've got a roof over your head. And I, I think that's the attitude towards lots of children in care when actually we should be giving them the very best, not whatever's available. So, no, I felt uncomfortable broaching that because, yeah, I did. I don't think I even felt worthy of living in a hostel, let alone a living home, because my self-esteem was so low at that time. And Becca, so you mentioned safeguarding uh, uh, risks. So those were clear. Those are detailed very clearly in the paper as well. The social worker that was supporting you would have been theoretically, I, I presume, aware of those risks. I mean, how on earth can a six, 16, 17 year old young woman, girl, sorry, be placed in a situation like that? I mean, how is that justified? I don't know. I ask the same questions myself. But the conclusion I've come to is that the government cares more about supporting private companies who um competed for about £120 million in contracts in 2020 than the vulnerable young people living there. For me, it's an absolute no-brainer that if you're 16, living opposite a 25-year-old known to the police, there's clear risks there of child sexual exploitation, of grooming, of domestic abuse. Um, I mean, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but my mental health absolutely spiralled um, when I was in that placement. So I don't know if that's something that you're going to touch on as well. Well, if you are if you want to talk about it, absolutely. I mean, did you have mental health problems before you went into the placement? It's a really good question. And I think I was, I would describe myself as a child who was very sad because of what was going on at home and what I'd experienced. But I had no diagnosable mental health until I went into that placement. And very quickly, uh, living by myself in a cold flat with no electricity, with no one to just come home to after a long day at school, uh, check up on me, cook me a nice meal, ask me how I was doing, you know, just do all the little things that foster carers do with children, whether it's pamper nights or going to the cinema, you know, I just felt so lonely and uh, and actually when I was in the placement I remember one time a, another girl knocked on my door that I'd never seen before and the first thing she said to me was do you have a knife and I didn't really know what she meant I think I was quite naive and I, I was like what do you mean you know like a knife to butter toast or like what are you talking about um, and she said no and then she lifted up her cardigan and I saw uh, lots of cuts on her wrist and so 
that then opened up this world, this new coping mechanism to me where I, I began self-harming because I just didn't know what else to do. And actually it was a temporary relief and things got so bad. Um, you know, no one was supervising me. Uh, my social worker didn't know what was going on, that my self-harm got so poor that I became hospitalised twice over 18 months. And the second time I was hospitalised, I was there for four nights and no one from the hospital even knew I was gone until day four. And that just shows you the horrendous level of or lack of supervision in those placements. And that those problems being exacerbated very much by the environment you were in. Definitely. I mean, I know that the uh, relationship between mental health and housing is very well established anyway. But I think that lack of human touch and love and care definitely magnified what was going on. I mean, I know you won't have a probably have an answer to this question because this is about the the other girl that came to you but even the girl coming to you and asking you do you have a knife the sense that I get from hearing that is that she was trying to open up or confide in somebody about the problems that she was experiencing is that is that too much to am I going too far there no I think you're right I think a lot of the time staff were well-meaning but we only saw a social worker every two weeks and then other times staff were really busy with 38 children and young people to deal with in one space or there'd be random receptionists who didn't know your name. So, yeah, I think that was really her trying to seek some kind of support, definitely. Becca, the paper, you also highlight issues around digital safeguarding. And I know these will be, you know, much greater now than they were even 10 years ago mm. um, when you were living in the unregulated placement. Could you expand a bit about on that? Uh, what did digital safeguarding mean 10 years ago and what, what does it mean now? I think the landscape's completely changed. So now I don't even have any idea really what it's like to be a young person with tw- who's growing up and developing at a time where uh, there's an online bullying 24-7, there's um, grooming online, there's, there's an epidemic of sexting, of children being... Um, asked to you know to share inappropriate photographs it's just horrendous and when I was in the hostel I think that um, there just wasn't that infrastructure that that there is now so for example there's a website called OnlyFans which lots of children and young people do subscribe to and uh, you know if you're living in a hostel and you're absolutely broke and you're starving it's like are you going to live with that or if you know that you can get a really easy 50 quid by uploading a photograph online even though you're underage are you going to do that and so I think it's a huge risk and there has been some research which I refer to in the paper which shows that children in care are at greater risk of um, yeah being more susceptible to websites like OnlyFans. I mentioned at the start we made an episode on County Lines back in May I was listening back to it in preparation it's a fantastic episode people should listen to it but just uh, for anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen to that, young people that are in unregulated placements, are they more at risk of becoming involved in country lines? Are they more vulnerable to exploitation? Without a doubt. So thinking back to my own experience, I was in the hostel for 10 minutes the first day. And the first thing that anyone ever said to me was, if you want any green, you know where I am. I mean, let's not even get into how intimidating that is for a child to be welcomed in that way. But it just shows how easily accessible drugs were in that placement. And especially when there's no adult supervision and no requirement for adults to actually care for young people, um, 
yeah, there's nothing stopping children going out, uh, being vulnerable to gangs. We know that children in these settings as well are at much higher risk of going missing compared to children out of these settings. So um, that's another factor. I also think children without a stable sense of family and belonging would be more susceptible to that kind of uh, gang, uh, for want of a better word, the family or the sense of belonging that they would find in that gang setting. And that vulnerability and that need for belonging is something that gangs will prey upon. Absolutely, absolutely. And we know that gangs, unfortunately, are extremely sophisticated now. So whereas a local authority might have a backlog of referrals or be really underfunded, actually, gangs are extremely sophisticated. Um, They know how to move without leaving very little trace. There's also an issue of cuckooing, which you might have come across before, which is where... um, Gangs will overtake uh, a room or the accommodation of someone really vulnerable and actually use that as a base, um, you know, to as a distribution base, essentially, which is another reason children there are so vulnerable. Now, in the Children Commissioner's 2020 report, Unregulated, um, I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's a really helpful report to provide some additional information. It states that 5,860 children spent time in unregulated accommodation away from their home area in 2018-2019. And that's 128% more than six years ago. We've already discussed your placement was in the area that you'd grown up in, but are young people that are placed in unregulated placements out of area, are they especially vulnerable to exploitation by the likes of County Lions gangs? I think that's true to say because they might not have those existing relationships to lean back on or even to disclose information to. And when a child is completely without relationships um, and they're suffering trauma, they're going to to look for that. And they, you know, a child might also feel a lot more vulnerable without having that backing that they know that their, you know, friend's mate is down the road who could help them out in a difficult situation and so on. Thanks, Becca. Now. When we made the episode in July with Caroline Willow from uh, Article 39, that was on the Care Review, we discussed some of these issues. We also discussed the issue about um, overrepresentation of black and minoritized children in the care system. But it's worse than that in terms of unregulated placements. So according to Article 39, despite comprising 26% of the care population, children, boys uh, and children from black and Asian and minority ethnic communities, they make up over half of children in unregulated placements. So from a starting point, black and minoritized children are overrepresented in the care system. And then they're again overrepresented in unregulated placements. Do you have any insights into why that happens? I think part of it is to do with the systemic racism in the system as it is. We know that we have so far to go in social work to be truly anti-racist. And it is a heartbreaking testament to the failures of um, social services across the country that this happens. Perhaps there's also something about services feeling less accountable. Maybe if there are um, children seeking refuge, if they don't have parents or family or, you know, well-meaning teachers there to intervene and advocate, they may feel that they can get away with this, which is just not on. In relation to the independent review of children's social care, now that's ongoing, um, and this is the context that we're discussing your work in. The Case for Change document was published by the review team in June last year, and it states that the, the use of unregulated accommodation for children under the age of 18 should come to an end. 
Are you confident, Becca, that the government will follow through on that recommendation? Going back to the case for change document, the first thing that I would say is that it doesn't go far enough. So the author says that there are strong feelings on the issue of unregulated placement, but it's not just strong feelings. 22 children died in these settings between um, 2018 and 2020. The risks are clear. We really need government to commit to change. And next week, um, on the 8th and 9th of February, Article 39 are taking the government to court in a judicial review around this issue. So you may recall in the last um, podcast we did um, with the director of Article 39, she was explaining how it's a two-tier system and discriminatory that 16 and 17-year-olds are exempt from love and care. And so I really hope that the judicial review is successful. And it's really unfortunate we have to rely on Article 39 to challenge the government to do the right thing. You've been involved recently in a petition that was taken to Downing Street in in relation to this issue. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So uh, last Tuesday, I was one of six care experienced adults who took the petition, which was 10,700 strong to number 10. And it was a really surreal day. I think knowing that we, I was in a community of people who have been marginalised and haven't had a voice, suddenly knowing that we were there supported by 10,000 followers, uh, 10,000 petitioners was was absolutely amazing. Um, We bumped into Jeremy Corbyn when we were there as well um, in Parliament. He was having a cup of tea and we gate crashed and he spent 40 minutes speaking with us and really listening to our concerns. Um, So I think, yeah, it was a historic day, but one that I really wish didn't have to happen. Absolutely. I'm just coming back to the language um, from the case for change. You know, the word should is a word that can be used very creatively. It doesn't say must come to an end. It says should come to an end. It's definitely allowing some wriggle room there um, for government, if government are actually going to pay heed to that recommendation in the first place. But the, um, the review team still have not committed either way to a, to a position for or against, and it needs to be against, as far as we're concerned as social workers. It needs to be against, absolutely. Absolutely, no question. Becca, I want to talk a bit about your article and and the research process. This is something I find really interesting, um, having a, a sort of research background myself. Your research is conducted via an autoethnographic approach. So you've said you relied on your old diaries and journal articles. I studied for research masters back oh, longer than I'd like to remember. I think it was 2005. Um, and I do remember learning about ethnographic approaches. And it could be, it could be that autoethnography was covered in my course and I wasn't paying attention. But when I read your paper, it was actually the first time I'd, I'd kind of come across that term. It's, it's fairly uncommon. I'm going to say it's fairly uncommon to save my own embarrassment here. Perhaps you're going to tell me no, it happens all the time. Is it a, quite a unique way to, to conduct research? Well, I suppose the first thing I'd say is that you will know a lot more about research than I do, having having done a master's. Actually, this is the first time I've ever done any, well, any research at all. Like many people, I did an MA route into social work, but I definitely would not describe myself as having a background in academia or anything like that, which, you know, already was it was quite a steep learning curve for me to do this. But that approach, you're right, it is really uncommon um, because it relies on subjective first-hand experiences and reflections. And for me, I suppose, 
it's interesting that it's described as a a unique way, but for me it felt like the only way because, sure, I could write a distanced kind of research paper about the state of things, but having lived in that environment, you know, with my five senses, I felt what it's like to be hungry, I've seen what it's like um, for drug dealing to happen in the corridor, I've felt what it's like to be cold, I've listened to music till 4am when I had to go up for college the next day. So there were all those experiences that I couldn't quantify, but they were they were kind of qualitative and anecdotal. So it just felt like it was the only way for me to really truly speak to it from what I knew and lived. And you said you don't have an academic background, but you are now part of the academy. You are someone who's going to be coded by students doing MAs into in, in social work. It's 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 a lovely it's a lovely place to be. Um, an expert, an expert by experience, but and also an expert um, by peer review in terms of having the article published. Um, now, in the article, you mentioned certain ethical questions surrounding the approach. You were unable to obtain the consent of the child that you were at the time you wrote the journal articles. And in some ways, it's kind of sounds silly, but in some ways, it's really, really profound. Um, you know, how would the 17-year-old Becca feel about the publication of her diaries? I think that, so what usually happens, I don't know if this is normal, but I usually feel emotions in kind of waves or, you know, it's not just one emotion, it's kind of one and then the secondary one. So I think the first, I'll be honest, the first emotion would be mortification. I mean, <clears throat> You've seen what I've shared in that those extracts are really personal. It's suicidal thoughts and self-harm and deeply traumatic things. And some of those things have I had to blot out, which you saw. So I think she'd be mortified because um, there were also just, you know, normal, like normal teenage girl things in the diary, like who I had a crush on at the time or like, you know, little uh, arguments I'd had with friends in the uh, in the cafeteria at school and things. So I think she'd be mortified. But I think the secondary emotion would be, okay, a feeling of, well, if this is going to help one more person to, uh, yeah, out of this situation, or if this is going to teach one social worker about the realities, then it would be worth it. So I think it would be mortification, kind of pause for thought, and then maybe a pride that they'd be used for the common good, hopefully. I would like to think that 17-year-old Becca will be very proud. I'm curious to know, have you... When did you start keeping a journal? I, I remember writing letters, um, if that counts, when I was about seven or eight about how I felt. Um, and then I started writing poetry when I was about 10 or 11. But it, I didn't have a kind of physical journal that I wrote in till I was about 15. And actually, I remember the turning point. Um, so no, sorry, I just turned 16, actually. And I was in a foster placement uh, that was breaking down and it sounds really cheesy but it was breaking my heart I was just devastated that things weren't working out and the only thing that helped me was one day I just got a pad of paper and scribbled down all my thoughts so I would say that was really the start of that journaling process and it's something that I've kept up and something that I still do now as well um Although I don't think the ones that I publish now will be any more, uh, will be of interest at all. But yeah, so kind of from that age. Um, I'm, I'm just interested, you said you wrote poetry as a teenager. There's certain, there's there's a definite lyricism to, to the, your entries as well. Um, it, it struck me when I was reading them. So it's interesting to hear you say that you were actually writing poetry as well. And the question actually that has just come to me, I know you're a musician, I'm a musician as well. When you were in the placement, did you have access to instruments? 
Uh, I would say on and off. So I had like kind of a a cheap keyboard that I had, but it would depend whether or not I had enough money for electricity to practice. Um, I had an amazing nana who worked three jobs as, you know, a cleaner and a babysitter to give me piano lessons when I was growing up. And so, yeah, I did have the keyboard, but when funds were really short, I'd turn up to my piano lessons really embarrassed. And, you know, I couldn't say, sorry, I couldn't practice because I'm skint and there's no electricity. So, you know, I'd say on and off. But the reason I'm asking that is because, and maybe something that not everybody would initially kind of think of when they're thinking of a young person in care. If someone is a musician, if someone's musical, that expression is so innate and so, Mm. so important. Like I would hate the idea of my instruments being taken away from me. And if you weren't able to actually realise that aspect of your personality, that will have had an impact. Um, And it's one that I think, if you're thinking about the needs of a child, if you're a social worker thinking of the needs of a child, it may not be something that comes to mind Mm. to be asking, are you a musician? You know, how, how are you going to, how are you going to be able to play? That's really important. That's from my perspective, at least. So yes, I absolutely agree. I think that there's a lot of talk in social work about seeing the child holistically, but in practice, it doesn't happen. And absolutely, if for me, not having access to music would have felt like uh, an almost like amputation of the spirit and I know I don't really know how else to say it it sounds really grandiose but it was part I know of my it does, identity but I completely understand it's one of those things talking about music you can feel sometimes like really kind of pompous or something you know but I, I totally get it I totally get it yeah sorry I interrupted you though. no no I just to say yeah we need to look more about children developing their interests whether it's music or whether it's basketball or tiktok or whatever it is because that's what really gives children a sense of accomplishment and achievement. And when you're just feeling, I nearly swore then, when you're feeling awful in care and so different from your other peers, it really gives you, yeah, self-esteem and something to build on. Yes. And the, the idea of just creation and being, you know, able to do that and make something. The idea of, um, well, poetry in particular, because poetry, all you need is your mind, a pen and a page. Music is different in that you need an instrument and that's your instrument is your voice. But the idea of creating something for nothing and the empowerment that can come from that from a young person's perspective, um, I think is, val- is is incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah. And, and care experienced people have so much to say. Um, I was around, you know, five care experienced adults the other day and just so impressed at how articulate and wise they are and you know they've seen things that most people would never see in the whole lifetime so to have that outlet and to give them a voice is really important um, becca that's that's really that's a really helpful point to make because oh, i had a question i wanted to ask it's it's in relation again to that children commissioners um report uh Anne longfield the, the the previous children's commissioner she states in the foreword to the report and this is the quote starting now when i meet children in care i'm constantly struck by their strength talents and resilience Often these are vulnerable children who've had to cope with incredibly difficult situations alone. Perhaps because of this, they often appear to be older than their years, end quote. Now, I was struck by a quote from your paper and you explain, begin quote, I have such a deep wounded sadness. I feel like a lost and lonely wounded child, end quote. In the quote, you say you feel like a child. You were in fact a child, but did your circumstances force you to assume the mindset and the outlook of an adult because of the challenges you had to, you had to overcome? It absolutely did. You know, while my friends were thinking about normal teenage girl stuff like photo shoots or let's go to this concert or what outfit are you wearing? 
that just was not my priority. My priority was how am I going to get through the half term when I've not got enough money? Um, how am I going to feed myself? How am I going to heat myself? How am I going to apply to get into uni when I had no context of what a UCAS application was, first in my family to go to uni, it was all so alien to me. So it was that duplicity of being an adult child and no child should have to be, you know, we spoke about adultification um, the other day, which is is used in a different context usually, but no child should have to assume those responsibilities. They should be cared for and and loved properly. Well, yeah, if we just take it back, we have talked about adultification a couple of times. Becca, if you could just explain what that term means before we move on. Yeah, so adultification refers to a form of prejudice and racial discrimination um, that black and minoritised children face. So there's lots of research that says uh, minoritised children are treated as a lot older, treated more punitively at school, um, punished much more than their peers, you know, stopped and searched much more. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to take that word from that community. um, But I think there's something about care experienced children being uh, asked or forced to assume those kind of adult-like qualities as well. Yes, because I mean, again, it comes right back to the start when you were talking about that list of of um, features of what you were saying was a, a careless placement. Um, you know, the idea that somebody could see that as empowering, but to think of a 16-year-old that you're empowering them by treating them like an adult is not empowering them. It could potentially be damaging them significantly. Definitely. And actually, in every other service, if we look at um, health, for example, in medicine now, they are now considering the end of adolescence to be 25. So we know that the the, the prefrontal lobe, um, which is responsible for rationality and decision making and logic, that isn't fully formed until age 25. And yet we're expecting children nine years younger to make life changing decisions. to have to navigate an awful, you know, service of housing and bills and everything else. So, so much needs to change. Absolutely. Last question, Becca. I want to talk about your own experience then, reviewing your experience as a child through the perspective and experience as a qualified professional social worker. I imagine that's afforded you a unique perspective that many of your colleagues simply won't have. Mm -hmm. Is there a need for improved understanding of the needs of children and young people that are placed in careless settings, unregulated placements? There really is. And I very much hope that my paper uh, is the first of many. I hope that more care experienced people speak up and are empowered to uh, write about their own experiences because the reality is all the training in the world um, can't teach you what that it's like unless you've really lived it. Um, Statistics don't paint a picture or a one-off, you know, tour of a hostel or a presentation by a staff member working there who's obviously going to paint it in a positive light just won't show the reality. So I think there does need to be more joined up work in between social workers who have, you know, lots of professional knowledge, but also people with lived experience who have a completely different sensory lived knowledge as well. I would encourage everyone listening to read the paper. As academic papers go, it's very accessible. It's very engaging. Um, you have no excuse. Becca, thanks so much uh, for joining me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great to, to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time.